Well, what do you think? I think we can get going. If we're going to do it, we should do it. All right. Otherwise, we're not going to get it done tonight. Yeah. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. My name is Scott Gardner and here with me is my very good buddy, producer Paul Spataro. Hello. <laughs> What an intro. <laughs> come, in, come in like firecrackers. Hi. <laughs> well, uh, I am excited to talk about these issues because, full disclosure, I don't think I've ever read these before. Even back when we did our, uh, our much-talked-about uh, read-through of all the Hulk versus Thing fights in anticipation of doing this project like years ago... Um, really, I I don't think these were in uh, in the read through that I did. I'm not sure why, or maybe I just you know my memory is notoriously lousy, so maybe I just don't remember reading them before. But they seemed fresh and new to me, and uh, uh, not to bury the lead, but I, I really liked them. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about this. this. I thought these were good stuff. Well, these fall right in in the heyday of my collecting. You know, this is. Uh... Ah. You know, this is when I was at, at at my most manic, you know, in wanting to read everything that came out. Right. So I, I was totally on board with this the day it became available, or the day <laughs> they became available. So today we, we we got two books, but they're both part of the same story. Uh, just to throw it out there to the listeners, we are continuing our coverage of the tussles between uh, the thing of the Fantastic Four and the Incredible Hulk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as as we've been doing, we've been kind of rating the fight, who wins, who loses, blah, blah, blah. And we have two issues here, and there is a fight in them, or there's a fight in each of them, so we can do it, but not the knockdown, dragout fight we've seen in the last couple that we've covered. Well, the cover of the first issue, uh, Fantastic Four 166, uh, I like that the hyperbole actually lives up to what happens in the issue because it says not just another thing versus hulk battle you'll gasp at our shock ending i don't i wouldn't say that i gasped but it was a shock ending that i didn't see coming and i thought it was pretty cool so yeah i didn't gasp but i also didn't go for <laughs> right <laughs> this this one honestly it doesn't need any dialogue this cover you know, no no there's a lot of it but it doesn't need any of it no you're right you know the, the the Fantastic Four are all falling from an exploding aircraft. 
and the Human Torch says it's the Hulk, and the th- oh, it's the Hulk. He smashed our ship, and the thing is kind of leaping from the plane towards the Hulk, who's on the ground with his fist clenched, ready to go. And the thing says, "Yeah, well, wait till you see what I do to him." You don't need any <laughs> of that dialogue, right? Just just the the image itself, and it's by uh, Rich Buckler and uh, inked by Dan Adkins. Uh, it's an awesome cover. I think this is an iconic cover. It is an cover. awesome cover. It is. It's a great cover. And the thing that's funny is, um, you know, we'll get into the interior credits here in a moment, but I looked, so with the way that the next issue, 167, ends, although I'd never read it or haven't read it yet, I kind of thought I knew what was going to happen. So I peeked ahead just to see if I was right. And, of course, I was right. And, of course you were right. Wait a minute. Whoa, well, I didn't. Whoa, whoa. I didn't mean it that way. I, it, it, what I meant was it was what I thought it was going to be. Um, but the artist, because these two issues have are, have a guest artist, but the artist for that issue, one sixty eight, on the interior is uh, Rich Buckler, and I I didn't care for it as much. I mean, it's it's good. It's not bad, but it. I mean, I'm looking at this cover, going, "Wow, this this is this is my Rich Buckler, right? Yeah, this is the Buckler the way I remember him." This cover, but, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the the Buckler art on the interior of 168, just two issues later, um, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know if it's the inker. I'm trying to remember who did ink him. I want to say it's Joe Sinnott, who I like a lot, and unfortunately, we we just lost him recently, which is really yeah, it's just sad. this week. Yeah. But now, does, uh, does, is that the one with uh, Luke Cage on the cover? That's the one. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's what I meant by of course is because I remembered the cover and I knew it was somewhere in this era, so I was like, I wonder if the next issue is the one that brings in Luke Cage. And of course, you know, when I when I turned to it, that's that's what it was. So I wasn't trying to make myself sound big headed. I just I I thought I knew where it was heading. Well, you don't have to try. <laughs> <laughs> Some things just come naturally. <laughs> uh, no, I, I would, I, I don't necessarily mean that, but then maybe I don't know. <laughs> so this, this cover though, and I don't remember where I got it from, but I have a T-shirt with this cover on it. Really? Oh, that think, would be awesome. I think I got it at Kohl's, but I can't tell you for certain. I'm loving Kohl's, dude. I just got – I don't know if you saw my picture I posted up, but I just got a T-shirt of uh, the cover of Justice League of America. I'm just going purely off the top of my head. I want to say it's 207, I think. It's the first part, It's the first chapter of Crisis on Earth Prime with the uh, the um, Prime Syndicate escaping from Limbo, and you mm-hmm. see all – Many heads of like the Justice League and the Justice Society and everybody all around it. I freaking love that piece of art and uh, and saw it somewhere on the internet. Somebody bragging, "Hey, look at the new T-shirt I got!" So I checked into it and Kohl's had it where you could order it through their website. So I, my wife got it for me for Father's Day and it's freaking awesome. It is, <laughs> yeah. Justice League of America 207. But yeah, I'm loving that. That's starting to become a thing. Iconic, like Bronze Age covers, starting to become T-shirts. I've been seeing more and more of them. Uh, but this, yeah, that this one right here would be a great T-shirt or a poster. Yeah, well, this one, 
this actually has two images that you could say that about because the final splash page, which we'll get to that yeah. in a few minutes, but that one could also be a T-shirt or a, or a poster. Yep, I agree. So, well, are we ready to jump into this one? I guess we can. So the first issue we're covering is Fantastic Four number one sixty six, which has a January of nineteen seventy six cover uh, date. It is written by Roy Thomas, penciled by George Perez, inked by Vinnie Coletta, uh, colored by Phil Rachelson, and lettered by Joe Rosen, and edited by Roy Thomas. And I always feel like that's da- a danger zone when it's edited by the writer. You, right. wanna, you know, the whole idea of having an editor is to have a second set of eyes on things. <laughs> you know, if, if, you're, if you're self-editing, it means nobody's editing. Doesn't it? No, I don't think that's a problem with this issue because I really like this issue. I'm not trying to go there. But I'm just just as, as a matter of course, I don't think it's a good idea to have anybody be their own editor. Just because, you know, proofread this for me. <laughs> now, where would this fall in Roy's personal timeline? Had he been uh, EIC yet? I think so. I'm not 100% sure, but I think he had. Uh, yeah, because at this point it says uh, EIC was Jerry Conway. And he was after Thomas, right? Mm-hmm. I think so, yeah. Yeah, Thomas was the first one after Stan. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I, I, I always have trouble keeping them all straight, but I thought he was. So, yeah, Yeah. Once, once Roy stopped being the editor-in-chief, I, like, the, 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 parade of editors that came in and left. I couldn't tell you what order it was between Jerry Conway and Len Wein and, uh, you know, when uh, Jim Shooter, well, Jim Shooter followed all those guys up. But, right. You know, I know that, but but there was, you know, there, were guys, there was, I'm trying to remember from reading the uh, the book, you know, about the history, I think that, like, one of the guys was editor-in-chief for like a day. Right, yeah. Yeah, they had a whole string of them. It was, I mean, Wolfman, uh, Ween, a whole bunch of them were yeah. editor-in-chief, all all in quick succession and for relatively short periods of time. Yeah, well, because I think it was a very thankless job. Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, just look at Shooter. I mean, look at the beating that poor guy takes to this very day on the Internet. And yeah, But, for, you know, for all intents and purposes, the company did very, very well under his uh, control. Yep. And, and I met yeah. Jim Shooter a couple of times, uh, one of which was at the local comic store here. Uh, I'm friendly with Jeff Vaughn, uh, who's a you know a writer, and I, I I'm friendly with him, having met him at a show. But I've met him enough times that you know we know each other fairly well now. Uh, and he, they were doing an independent book called I think it was called Bedtime Stories for Older Children or something like that. And Jim Shooter had written one of the stories because it was an anthology book. And uh, he and, and Jeff and uh, another artist, uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name off the top of my head right now, Joe something or other, uh, were all at the local store. And I stopped by to say hello. And, you know, it, it, I just happened to stop by when it was in a lull. And I was just sitting talking to the three of them for probably 45 minutes. And Jim Shooter was a hell of a nice guy, <laughs> at least in that conversation. He was, you know, very personable. But he gets beat the crap beat out of him by everybody who talks about, you know, his iron fist. And maybe he, you know, maybe he's a nice guy to sit and talk to, not, not such a nice guy to work for. Uh, 
But you know, you know what they say. He had the trains running on time. I, I suspect the truth is somewhere in the middle. I've I've always wondered if maybe the the thing of it was was that. Now I realize that much of what we know of the Marvel bullpen was a fiction. I, I understand that, but I think the basic idea behind it may have kind of sort of been true as far as it being, you know, a loose, fun camaraderie of, of free spirits, having fun, creating funny books. And I'm thinking that when shooter came in and was trying to run, you know, steer the ship with a, with a firmer hand, I think maybe that got some noises out of joint and that's where the, the hurt feelings come in because, I mean, let's face it, nobody really likes to be told what to do. But, you know, in, in his instance, he was given a job and he took the job very seriously and, and tried to do it to the best of his ability. And I think people just kind of resented him for it because he wasn't just letting them run roughshod over him, you know, and, and do whatever the hell they wanted to do, as had happened in other uh, regimes at Marvel. Well, know? I think and, in that in that era, I think a lot of the guys were, you know, they were young. These guys were probably, you know, all in their very early 20s at the time. And they were, you know, they were enjoying the good life. They were out partying and stuff. And they were getting their books written. But they had very, very much free reign to just kind of do what they wanted because nobody was looking at them that closely. Because they were, you know, they the, the lunatics were running the asylum. It was, you know, right. one of them. One right. of them would be the guy who was in charge. Right. And then yep. when they finally put somebody in, in charge who says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! This is the way we're going to do it," they didn't want to hear it. And and that's not to say that these are necessarily bad guys either. But they, you know, they kind of got used to just doing whatever they wanted, however they wanted to do it, and you know, they they got a boss who wasn't willing to just let them do that. Right, exactly, exactly, and 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 I suspect that's a lot of it. Now, I'm not saying, I mean, you know, I wasn't there. I, I don't know Shooter personally or anything. So, I mean, maybe he did do some certain things to to justify some of the the feelings that they have. But I, I find it very hard to believe that that you know everything they say about him is true because I read a hell of a lot that the guy has written. You know, on the different blogs and you know different interviews he's given and things like that. And while my perspective would be, you know, from from basically a child perspective, I mean, I met him, I was, I had to be what? I had to be early 20s at the oldest, um, but I met him, and he was, I mean, he was really nice to, you know, to, you know, somebody who was nobody to him, you know, mm-hmm. Uh but I, I found him to be very personal and, and friendly and, uh, you know, welcoming to, uh, you know, to a young fan and everything. So, I, I don't know. I just. Yeah, I'm not picking sides. I'm just saying, yeah. you know, that as far as I know, the, you know, the guys I've met in this group that we're talking about, I've liked the guys on both sides of the, the <laughs> of the equation that I've met. Uh, like, for example, you know, Jerry Conway, I, I met him and had a conversation with him and I thought he was great. I met Jim Shooter and had a conversation and thought he was great. So, you know, I'm not picking sides. And I don't even know if they're two of the ones that are, you know, have had negative things to say about each other, to be honest with you. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I know John Byrne had some negative things to say about Shooter. But John Byrne has negative things to say about everybody. Everybody, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I tell you what I would pay some serious money to see, though, 
is I would love to get Jim Shooter and Michael Eisner together and have them basically reenact the, uh, you know, comparing their scars scene from Jaws between Quinn and Hooper <laughs> as far as, you know, their time as uh, as the head honchos of their respective companies. I would pay serious money to watch that. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's, I, I find... I, I guess you know it comes down to you don't want to see how the sausage is made. <laughs> you know you, you want yep. you want to believe that these guys all can get along and that especially when when they present themselves to you as nice guys, you know you want to feel like every, you know everybody should see each other that way. But right. I guess we're going too far afield here because this isn't the Hulk versus the thing. This is shooter against the Marvel bullpen. And we don't <laughs> want it to be that. So, so I have still, a serious question for you as we, we flip to this first page here. Sure. Oh, I'm sorry, you haven't done your synopsis yet. I have not. <laughs> Go ahead. I have not. And if your question is, have I ever seen an airplane like that? No, I have not. <laughs> but uh, the story is titled, If It's Tuesday, This Must Be the Hulk. The Fantastic Four have been called in by the military once more to provide their scientific expertise in finding the means to cure the Hulk, who has been spotted in the American Midwest. As Reed, Sue, Johnny, and Ben take a commercial 747 to the location of the military base, Ben scares off some people gawking at them and then tries to sweet-talk an airline steward until he realizes it's a male steward, possibly Dario Gonzalez. Johnny is upset with about how his last date with Frankie Ray went badly when she became afraid of Johnny when he turned into the Human Torch to battle the Crusader and fled the scene and considers leaving the group. When they begin talking about how they are going to stop the Hulk, Reed tells them that he has perfected his Psy Amplifier, which Reed is sure will cure the Hulk this time around. As the group is discussing the ethics of hunting the Hulk once more, the subject of their conversation jumps past their plane, accidentally smashing through one of its wings and sending the plane into a crash. In order to save the passengers aboard, Reed and Johnny go outside, Johnny trying his best to repair the damage done to the wing and act as a temporary jet engine, while Reed uses his body to stretch out into a parachute so the plane can land safely. The, the entire process proves incredibly painful for Reed. However, they manage to land the plane safely with no injuries. They are picked up at the landing site by the Air Force and taken to the military base where they are introduced to the youthful and overeager Colonel Sellers. The thing doesn't take a liking to Seller's attitude, but before they can discuss anything further, the FF are deployed when the military devices detect the gamma radiation emanating from the Hulk's body. The Fantastic Four are rushed out in a military craft, but it is soon destroyed by the Hulk. While Reed uses his already taxed stretching powers to hold the Hulk, Sue places an invisible force field around the Hulk's head to cut him off from oxygen. Mr. Fantastic orders the thing to knock the Hulk out, but Ben finds little pleasure in, do in knocking out his longtime rival in such a low-down way. With the Hulk knocked out, the Fantastic Four take him back to the military base, where they shackle him to the Psy Amplifier device. Ben still feels as though it is a cruel thing to do, but decides to go along with it because he still believes that it's, good for, it's for the good of Bruce Banner. Reed plugs himself into the, into the device and uses his willpower to siphon the gamma radiation out of the Hulk, causing him to change back into Bruce Banner. Now too small for the shackles they had him in, 
banner falls to the floor, prompting Colonel Sellers, or Setters, excuse me, to break his promise about letting Banner be free once reverted into human form and ordering his men to shackle Banner up. When Banner comes around and starts begging for help, Ben has had enough and fights past the army and smashes the Psy amplifier. This causes the radiation to flow back into Banner, changing him into the Hulk again. To everyone's horror, Ben frees the Hulk and tells everyone gathered that he and the Hulk are joining forces so nobody can manipulate them ever again. The Hulk, confused about the circumstances surrounding this latest development, accepts the thing's friendship and threatens to smash anyone who stands in their way. Huh. It's, it's actually not a bad synopsis for the story. I think it kind of covers yeah, it. It's not too bad. And, uh, yeah, I love this story. <laughs> it's, it to, you know, it's another one that I love. And maybe it's, you know, I, I think it's 99% that, that it, it is well done and 1% nostalgia. <laughs> so you read this for the first time now i it, i'm i'm really thinking it's my first time if i if i have read it before i had absolutely no memory of it whatsoever so for me it, it this is a first time read and uh and i i seriously dug it i thought this was a really good one um for a lot of reasons i, I think the hulks portrayed well uh, I think the team is portrayed well. It's a nice showcase of their different powers and abilities. Um, and uh, and I thought generally the art was really good, although uh, the question I was going to ask you is, now we, we have seen now several times where Perez has been inked by Coletta. Have we ever liked it? Because I I really don't like Coletta inking Perez. Um, I, I feel like he's he really is uh, is sabotaging Perez's stuff. Now this is early Perez. Uh, I looked it up to see about where this was in in Perez's timeline. This is after um, Creatures on the Loose with the Man Wolf, but before. Logan's run and the, my first thought especially looking at this very first page was thank god it wasn't Coletta that inked him on Logan's run because I don't think I would have the same opinion of Logan's run that I do I have a very high opinion of that adaptation but I don't think it would be anywhere near as high if it was Coletta uh, having inked on that mm. um, you know I was I was as I was doing a reread for the purposes of today, I started looking at it and I started saying to myself, you know, does it really stand out to me as bad Coletta? And I, I don't think it. I don't think it does. I think it's okay. I think it, it would probably be better if it was inked by somebody who you know gave it a little bit more attention to detail, because Coletta, you know, as we know kind of, you know, was known for doing these things quickly. Um, but I also think this part of, part of it is, uh, you know, as you said, this is fairly early in the Perez library. And I think some of it is still, he's, he's still developing as an artist. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I think it's, it's very good. I think the art is very good in this story. I just, you know, when, when, when we talk about George Perez, we're talking about one of the all-time great comic book artists. 
Yep. So you, you just naturally hold his books to a higher standard. The art in this book is really good. And if you're just comparing it to the average artist, it blows away most of the stuff you see. Uh, but if you're going to put it on a, you know, on a table next to other George Perez art, uh, I would, I would put it as, you know, kind of average, nothing, you know, not, not, not one of his more special right. efforts, but average George Perez is still better than a lot of other stuff. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And as, as we said earlier, the, the last page, which is a splash page of the thing and the Hulk standing side, side by side, declaring kind of their partnership. Uh, it, it's a great image. I, I just think that's that's a terrific shot of the two of them just, you know, ready to ready to take on the world. I think with the way they're posed it being a white background and then that big yellow dot behind them. I, I think, as you say, it's, it's custom made for a t-shirt. I, I think that would look really awesome as a t-shirt, it, but it is an iconic image. It's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's great. I, I just, and the whole story, you know, I guess the biggest question I have, you know, clearly, the thing is having second thoughts about how they're doing this. All of a sudden, he's concerned about, you know, being cruel to the Hulk and Bruce Banner. And I think that kind of that kind of picks up from where we left off, where, you know, he genuinely cares. And we, we kind of talked about that in the last matchup they had against each other, uh, that he actually feels sorry for the Hulk, that for everything that's happened to him, it's even been worse for the Hulk. Um, so that flows naturally but does his final reaction flow naturally that that he takes that such an aggressive step to release him i kept expecting in the next issue that it would be revealed that he was being manipulated like maybe by the puppet master or or something um and maybe that is further down the line I, i'm not sure but um, it's not quite as evident in this issue as it is in the next issue, but he, he's, I think he's out of character. I like, as you say, that this seems at, you know, at first to be a natural progression of, of something that started with, you know, the giant size book that we covered of him, uh, thinking of the Hulk as a kindred spirit and thinking of Banner, uh, Likewise, as a kindred spirit to his own inner Ben Grimm as, you know, a man trapped inside the monster. And I like all that. But, yeah, when you get to the not the, and, and this is nothing against the story, because I really enjoy the story and I love the cliffhanger ending to this. So don't get me wrong. I, I, I really thought this was a great story. However, um, I, I kind of I, I think it's a great story when you don't think too much about whether or not he's in character because I, I do think this is kind of out of character for him to completely turn on his his family um, and side with the Hulk to a point where it sounds like he's actually threatening physical harm to them uh, if they come after the Hulk any further and, and that's what made me think that okay next issue it's going to be revealed that you know, somebody's toying with his mind or his emotions or, or something, because um, it does seem out of character. Um, not not that he cares about Banner and the Hulk, but just that 
you know, he would side with them against the other members of the FF. I, I thought that was a little bit strange, but a, but a great story nonetheless, and a really, really good cliffhanger ending. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think like, like I said, that's, that's the area where, you know, maybe it doesn't make total sense, but I, I, I get the feeling it was more or less, this is where Roy wanted them to be. And the only way to get them there quickly was to have the thing react this way. Uh, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but ultimately in the next issue, we find out being in such proximity to the Hulk for so long, the gamma radiation actually affected the cosmic radiation. And we'll talk about that more later. Yeah. And I kind of wish that they had said something about it also affected somehow the way he was thinking. It made him too rash. It it it, it took a hold of his impulse control or something like that. Right. Yeah. I think then it would have been more palatable to have the slightly out of character move. What I kind of thought might be happening here was something and I, I don't know if it was the psi amplifier or again you know some outside force that hasn't been revealed yet what i kind of thought might be happening was that ben was starting to become more hulk like himself well uh, maybe, but, yeah, maybe it could have even been a, a little bit of a residual from the last time where they where they kind of mind swapped yeah yeah, I, I think there's a number of ways there. it could have gone and a number of ways it could have been explained. Um, but I, I don't know, as, as we'll see with the next issue, I, I I felt like at the end of the day it wasn't really adequately explained. It was just he felt sorry for the Hulk, so he teamed up with him. Well, okay, but teamed up with him against your teammates and, and the people you consider family, that, that seems out of character to me. Yeah, it was more... The way he wrote it, it was more driven by this, uh, you know, over-anxious over, uh, military guy. Like, that's what drove him to it. But, yeah, it, it, I mean, it just, like I said, it, it almost felt like it was, you know, a lack of impulse control there that he should have been able to be a little bit more subtle in, in his response. Why is every officer in the marvel universe a dick because <laughs> this guy this guy's a dick too oh he's yeah, totally yeah. yeah well plus I, I couldn't help but wonder now i've never actually seen the movie myself but uh colonel sellers is that a reference to peter sellers in um dr strangelove by 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 chance i gotta look at the where they talk about him in the issue because in the uh in the in the Synopsis. One time they say sellers, and one time they say setters. Ah, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely sellers. Oh yeah, okay. This, you know, yeah. I mean, it definitely could be because you know, Doctor Strange Love was the military spoof. Right. Uh, you know, what what did Peter Sellers play? Like five different parts in that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So I I know the movie purely through reputation. I've actually never sat through it. I saw it many years ago in a film class. I couldn't, couldn't even tell you. I mean, we're probably talking 30 years ago. Maybe maybe more. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I couldn't get to give you too many details about it. But, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it could be, especially when this came out, you know, the movie wouldn't have been quite that old. Right. You know, the movie came out, I think, 60, 
four, I'm tempted to say. Something like that, yeah. So this would have been 12 years later, which, you know, the older I get, the less 12 years seems like. Right. So look, take a look at the actual fight. Uh, it's really one punch. Yep. Because, you know, the, the thing has a helping hand from uh, mainly from Sue cutting off the, the Hulk's oxygen. But also, you know, Reed is kind of holding him uh, steady so the thing can get a sucker punch in. And the thing kind of feels guilty about it, but he does knock him out with the punch. So, uh, you know, unlike that, that very first battle where uh, the Wrecker uh, <laughs> hit him with a ray to knock him out, this is still the punch that's knocking him out. So I do have to give the, uh, I have to give the battle to the thing on this one, even though it's with a little help from his friends. Yep. And I would think that because it says right in the caption box, there is no pleasure, you know, in, in doing this, that that means that he's probably not hitting him with his full power either. You know, that, you know, subconsciously or, or consciously, he's he's holding back a bit, too, because he doesn't really want to do it. He doesn't really want to hurt uh, the Hulk. But he still walks in and slugs him one, and it's enough to knock him out. So, yeah. I, I like the the, the uh, narration box though, where it says there's no accompanying shout about clobbering time. Right. So, like, you know, just just that kind of tells you, you know, that he he you know normally he he loves yelling that out. He says, you know, that's his battle cry. Yeah. Uh, so for him to not have that in here, it's, it's like because he knows it's like shooting fish in a barrel. And they're holding him still for him, and they're depriving him of oxygen, and they're saying, go punch him. That actual panel uh, at the top of page 26 with the Hulk being hit, that's really nicely inked to a point where I actually wonder if that is Coletta on that particular panel right there. That, that looks really sharp. Now, we, we can't overstate that because Coletta was a talented artist. The problem with Coletta was that he rushed, you know, he, he rushed to meet deadlines and he and he took shortcuts that, uh, right, you know, that that didn't do proper credit to the pencilers, particularly Kirby most of the time. Uh, but I'm sure other artists got, you know, shortchanged by his his inks as well. Uh, I, I think that you know Kirby was the one that's most easily documented because there's more copies of his original pencils around there to show you how he erased images and stuff. But Coletta was a talented artist. I, I have no doubt of that at all. So, you know, when when he took the time to do it right, he, he could make a beautiful page. And there are pages in here that are beautiful. That whole yeah. page, I think that whole page, you know, you, you pointed that on one image, and I, I agree with you, that is the standout on the page. But everything in that page looks good. I don't think there's anything in there where you say, oh, that you know, he he screwed this up. Well, I maybe not that he screwed it up, but it's just for a lot of the book, because Perez was new, and while while I think that Perez is one of those guys that uh, had great chops right out of the gate, he was still new right out of the gate. And so, you know, there's certain things he's doing that, uh, you know, that he would refine later on and, you know, become the great artist that he would become. Uh, 
So there's a lot of, you know, kind of rookie looking stuff through the book. And I guess my issue with Coletta in this instance, because I don't see a lot of the standard Coletta shortcuts as far as, you know, lack of background or lack of detail. It's more that his line just doesn't seem to be really adding much. Um, and I would think that it would be kind of the job of the veteran artist, in this case, the inker, to kind of shore up and help out the the rookie artist, if you know what I mean. And I, I, I don't know that I'm seeing a lot of that. And, and that's why that particular panel of the Hulk being hit really stands out to me, because that looks fantastic. That looks to me... Uh, on a level with uh, with that Marvel fanfare that we looked at recently, because the inking right there on the Hulk's face, to me, is very reminiscent of how how the Hulk looked in that issue, and that was uh, that was all burn in that one, wasn't it? Because I was thinking yeah. it because the inks right here to me look a lot like uh, Wyasek. Um, I don't know. It just it looks somehow it looks different than the rest of the book because it's a nice. Uh, tight and and really well defining uh, inking job on the Hulk's face, whereas I'm not seeing a lot of that in the whole rest of the book. A lot of the rest of it just looks like, you know, he he put down inks to say that it's inked, but it, it doesn't seem to be adding a hell of a lot to to a lot of the rest of it. I don't and know. That, I mean, and that's where you go to when when they when they use, instead of inker when they call it an embellisher. Right, uh, right. You know, and especially like you say, with a young artist, you want to see them embellish it a little bit. Uh, I, I think Perez had a had a good enough grasp on things that he didn't need to be embellished much. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think the art in this book is is pretty solid, even even with Coletta's inkings. I don't. I, I understand what you're saying that there's points where maybe it could have even been better. Uh, but there's no page at this where I look at and I say, "Oh, that looks bad." Right? No, no. It's just it doesn't. It's no. I don't think there's anything that looks bad in it. But there's definitely some places in it where, um, I, I just think it could look. For one, it could look better. But also, there's places in it where, um, like it, probably the best example I could give you, page three, uh, which is all dialogue. It's just different shots of the FF, you know, as we're dialoguing through this sequence and except maybe arguably for the top right shot of Ben's face, all the rest of this doesn't, I really don't see a lot of Perez in it. It's, it's heavily, um, Coletta's style. And it's well, not the good Coletta style either. It, it's it's like you know that stereotypical rushed Coletta where it's it's just kind of workman. He's not really adding anything. There's there's no real dynamism to it. Um, I still think at the time that this came out that there was still kind of that standing order to try and keep it in in the the house style. And right. Perez, Perez didn't really have enough of a, a rep yet. To say no, my right. style is better than the house style. Uh, so I think he had to conform a little bit as well. Right at this, at this point in his career. Yeah, yeah and I can see that because I mean, you look at Johnny at the bottom of that page right there. That could just as easily be 
uh, Coletta inking Don Heck, because that looks like Don Heck to me, that particular face. So that's yeah, what I mean, yeah. that, you know, it, it doesn't look... It doesn't look like Paris <laughs> in a lot of instances. It looks like Coletta kind of, you know, Im- imposing a style over him, which uh, it, you know, you're probably right, because th- that was kind of the standing order at the time was, you know, to to make it that house style and, and make it all kind of um, homogenized, you know, to where it all kind of looked relatively the same. And it would be a, a while before uh, Perez really broke out into, you know, his signature style. You see a glimpse of it here, but not, you know, not what it would become. I, I guess that's my biggest issue of it. But that, again, that may not be necessarily Coletta's fault, even though, you know, he is the inker. If he was doing what he was told to do, then, you know, you can't fault the guy. Yeah, and I'm, like I said, I'm not looking at any of this saying, uh, wow, he really screwed up. There was one. Was it Vinnie Coletta that inked the uh, the Man Wolf book we did? But that was uh, George Tusker, uh, and, that, and that was like awful. Remember that was uh, I, like it was that shot of Craven the Hunter where he looked like Fat Craven, and I mean there was just some I, stuff I'll, in there that was that was really bad, and I think that might have been Coletta. I'll have to look it up because I know that we we did an very early issue it may be Perez's first issue of Man Wolf I can't remember but no, I know we did, we did it the issue I'm talking about was, was a Tusca issue no no yeah. I, I know but I, I'm but there's one that we did do it was where it's opened and the Man Wolf is about to be hit by a train this was a this was quite a while ago we did that book and that was Perez inked by Coletta and I think that's only like an issue or two later than the one you're talking about so Coletta may have been the inker consistently for at least for a bit on that book. Um, but I'd have to look that up to be sure. But I, I definitely remember the art you're talking about. It was terrible. But I don't remember if it was Coletta on the inks with that. I'll, I'll look that uh, I'm, up. I'm looking it up right now, and it was Coletta. Okay. Tusk. Yeah. It was Craven the Hunter against the Man-Wolf. And right. the cover was by John Romita, and I thought it was beautiful. And the interior art was George Tusca, who I really don't like, inked by Vince Coletta, who didn't do him any favors. Right. But I don't want to spend too much time on that one. We've already done that one. You can go back into our archives and listen to that one if you'd like to hear us blast Vinnie Coletta for what he did in that issue. <laughs> and uh, I feel, you know, I, I know that it's kind of a running gag with us and, and you know, definitely with this show. But I, I do want to say, you know, I, I don't. I don't try to, you know, to be hurtful or hateful to the guy because ever since I read that book about him, uh, the the thin black line, I have gained a, a different perspective and a, even an appreciation of sorts for Vinnie Coletta. Um, so I, I, I hate to just, you know, make him, you know, the the constant whipping boy on the show, but you know, it's just one of those things when when you see certain things, you got to call him like you see him, and in this instance, I, you know. I, I do see things where I'm like, ah, you know, he's just, as you say, not doing any favors. But, but it's not bad either. It's just I, I would like to see more of the artist, you know, the pencilers' style come through, not get buried with subpar, you know, Coletta-isms. And that's definitely what I'm seeing on on page three. There's there's so much Coletta and so little Perez 
in that particular page and it and it bugs me a bit because it almost looks like romance comics or something if it wasn't for the thing hanging around in the background if you just looked at this page with no dialogue at all it, it could be it could be a romance book you know she the girl in the picture may be having an issue with you know her dad you know i mean that's kind of what it almost looks like you know like she's trying to defend her boyfriend to her father or something you know it just looks very standard right but just to back to that again like what kind of plane is that with a giant lounge couches tables <laughs> i could barely fit my legs in the chairs i have when i fly <laughs> It looks like they're in the Hall of Justice in that, uh, in that yeah. <laughs> opening splash page. And that's supposed to be the inside of an airplane. Okay. And, and it's a commercial flight. I mean, it would be one thing if they said it was their own private jet or something. It's a commercial flight, and they got this, all this room. Yeah, okay, please. Anyway, because we, well, we got another book to cover. The, <laughs> what are the man and the woman doing right there anyway? Oh, they're they're I mean, bumping ugly. I guess with the kid, there's a kid sitting. Uh, that's their kid, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, that kid's weird looking too. But I mean, it did. I don't blame the thing for getting kind of pissed off. It's like you know, <laughs> get a room, you two. Right. <laughs> I don't need to watch this. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I didn't really have any specific notes on this particular issue. I just, I really enjoyed it. Now, was this the first time that Sue would employ the uh, bubble over the head trick for the Hulk? Um, for the Hulk, I think so. I don't think we've seen that yet. But I think she did it. She's done it to other people before this. Oh, okay. Because I know this would become, you know, one of her her signature moves was, you know, the the bubble over the head and cut off their air supply type of thing. I like the shot of the Hulk's face when when he's like panicking because he can't breathe. Right. Although I, I have a hard time believing the Hulk would panic, but that's besides the point. Well, I, I mean, you know, if you if you go with the th- you know, the thought that, you know, at the end of the day, he's just one step above, you know, a, a dumb beast. You know, any any creature, you know, you suddenly cut off their ability to breathe kind of freaks out a little bit. You know, no matter how well trained you may be or, you know, how, how rational your mind might be or whatever that, you know, if, if you suddenly can't breathe. Yeah, that that's scary. You know, your your fight or flight instincts kick in. Mm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's my half-baked theory, anyway. <laughs> I can go with that. So let's There's read this one sweating. and go on to the next okay. one. All right. So uh, cover. I already said this is iconic. This is an A plus, as far as I'm concerned. This is this is pretty much as good as any you know, as good a cover as you're gonna find. Uh, the interior art, I think, you know, despite our criticisms of some of, of some of the inking and all that, I still think it's a well above average. Uh, it's not, you know, the best Perez, but it's really good Perez just the same. And I don't think the inking, I don't think the inking hurts it. So uh, I'm going to say a B plus on the interior art. And the story 
the biggest problem I have is that the thing is acting out of character. If they would just give you some sort of explanation for him to be acting that way, uh, I think that would prop it up a little. Also, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I know it was where they were going with the story, but I, I don't like the moping Johnny Storm, which we had here. But I think that was just where the character was at the time. That's not really a, a reflection on the writer. So I'm going to say a B on the story. It could be a little bit better, it, but it was really, really enjoyable. And I'm going to give the book a B plus. Okay. Um, love the cover. Um, I was going to argue with you about an A plus rating, but you know, looking it over, the the only issue I've gotten it's super minor. But did you notice that um, in the I don't know what I guess it's like the speed lines or something of the Hulk throwing whatever that is, the, the log or whatever at their uh, airplane, Johnny's hand, you know, the lower part of it that's in the speed lines, there's, there's no flame on his fingers, which I thought was really weird. But, uh, but no, I'm, I'm not going to quibble about it. I think this is an a plus cover. It's, it's really, really cool. Um, any, any uh, cover I look at and go, Oh, I'd love a t-shirt of that. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. That's an A-plus cover from um, Interior Art. I'm, I'm just not as high on it as you are. I like it. I think that there's some really good stuff in it, but there's a lot of issues with it, too, uh, for me. And a lot of it, you know, as I say, it just comes down to it, it's, you know, Paris at the beginning of his, uh, you know, of his game. So, uh, so art-wise for me, I think I'm going to go uh, – I think I'm going to go a C plus on it. I'm just, I just wasn't quite as high on it because I've definitely seen a lot better uh, from Perez. And then story-wise, I really like the story. I, I can kind of forgive that we don't have an explanation for why the thing is doing this yet, just because this you know this is the the opening chapter of this, and I'm relying on the writer to you know explain himself in the next issue. Um, so I can't really hold, the, you know, I can't hold that to this issue if it doesn't get explained, if you know what I mean. Um, so I really enjoyed the story and, and thought it was good stuff. And I love that cliffhanger ending. So I, I didn't really have any any serious problems with it. And I liked the showcasing of their powers. I like how the, the story starts out where they're starting to doubt their relevancy in a world that has the Avengers. And then somebody says something about, Oh, it's Johnny says something about 37 other supergroups. You know, he's being sarcastic, but he's right. You know, the, the Marvel universe was filling up fast when they started. They were, th- they were it. They were the only super team. They were the only super beings at the very beginning of the Marvel universe. Now, by this point in 76, you know, they're overrun with super beings you know, are they still special? Are they still the best? And they're kind of setting out to prove that, or at least Reed is. And I like how they go from that discussion right into an emergency where, with the you know the exception of the thing, they get to showcase uh, their abilities. And uh, you know, it, it's funny because as this started you know, with the plane being damaged and then it goes into the spin and all that, I got to thinking, you know, the Fantastic Four, they're pretty awesome, but how how the hell are they going to stop a plane from falling out of the sky, especially from inside the plane? Yet they pull it off in a more or less believable manner of of how they could save the plane. I mean, none of these guys is Superman. You know, none of them has the ability to both fly 
uh, and, you know, exercise super strength. You know, Superman could just, you know, fly in and save the plane. But the, the Fantastic Four don't, you know, none of them singly have that ability. You know, the, the thing has super strength, but he can't fly. The Human Torch can fly. He doesn't have super strength. So how are they going to do this? And I thought it was pretty clever uh, the way they pulled the whole thing off. So it was neat that, you know, you see that little doubt in them, but then you see them rally and do something that technically should have been impossible for them to do. That That's pretty cool. That is the Fantastic Four, you know, to me. So I thought that was really neat. So uh, I'm going to give the story a straight up A. I really liked it a lot. And, uh, and an overall grade for the book of, uh, of an A. I, th- I think it's a really good book, uh, despite, you know, some kind of, Subpar art, you know, Perez-wise. And again, as you say, subpar Perez is still a hell of a lot better than most anybody else that's out there. Um, I still thought it was a great book. Okay. So then we move on to the <laughs> continuation of the same story in Fantastic Four, number 167. All By the right. way, also, 25 cent cover price. <laughs> All right. So Fantastic Four, number 167. This one's cover dated February 1976. Uh, let's see, do we have all the, we do not have all the same players on this one. So the story in this one is called Titans 2. Uh, writer's the same, Roy Thomas. Penciler's the same, George Perez. Inker has changed to Joe Sinna, uh, who unfortunately we just recently lost. That's, that's just so sad. Um, all right, so synopsis on this particular issue. The Fantastic Four and the military are shocked when, in attempting to change the Hulk back into Bruce Banner, the Thing freed the Hulk and decided that he would... The Thing just decided to scroll on its own. That he would team up with the Hulk due to the inhuman treatment the Green Goliath had received from the military. When the FF and the military try to stop the two man-monsters from escaping, they easily smash through them. Breaking into the hangar... Hulk and the Thing smash all the planes except for the one in which they escape. While in the air, uh, the Thing suggests that they head back to the desert where the Hulk usually hangs out and asks him where they should go. Hulk dimly recalls a rock formation uh, that he can sit on and think. As they fly by the Gateway Arch in St. Louis, Missouri, the Hulk confuses it for his favorite sitting spot and demands that the Thing bring him there. Ben experiences a momentary dizziness and agrees to take them down. With Colonel Sellers about to attack, Mr. Fantastic manages to convince him to let the Fantastic Four go out and try to capture the Hulk and their errant teammate first. The four leave in another ship, and when they are in the air, Reed tells the others that the thing's constant proximity to the Hulk for an extended period of time may have an effect on him due to the Hulk's gamma radiation and stresses... Uh, and stresses that they need to get Ben before it's too late. They end up in St. Louis, where they spot the Hulk and Ben on a rooftop. The Hulk is furious that they didn't land directly on the Gateway Arch. Uh, Being unable to safely land on it escapes the Hulk's understanding. When the Hulk is about to toss a chunk of concrete on the soldiers that have gathered below, the Thing realizes the folly of allying with the Hulk and smashes the chunk of concrete before the Hulk can throw it. Not understanding what happened, the Hulk jumps down to attack the soldiers directly. Ben decides to try to go down and stop the Hulk when he is struck by yet another dizzy spell. 
Before anything can happen, the Hulk is distracted by Reed Richards, who orders the Hulk to stand down and allow them to take him into custody. He explains the danger Ben faces in being uh, in being being in rather prolonged proximity to the Hulk. This angers the Hulk, who attacks them for trying to separate him from his new friend. A battle ensues with the Thing and the Hulk against the remaining members of the Fantastic Four. The Human Torch tackles the Thing, who easily knocks out his young comrade, sending him flying into Reed. With Reed stunned on the gateway arch, he is an easy target for the Hulk, but is saved from a smashing by Sue's invisible force field. Realizing the mistake he has made, Ben begins fighting the Hulk. During their battle, he suddenly realizes he's changing back into Ben Grimm. He is easily knocked off the arch and sent falling to the ground. Now completely in human form, Ben uh, falls to a certain death but is saved by the Human Torch. Witnessing his former friend changing back into human form, the Hulk realizing, uh, realizes that the puny humans have made him al- uh, alone again and bounds off to seek solitude elsewhere. In the aftermath of the battle, everyone is surprised that Ben has uh, reverted back to normal due to constant exposure to the Hulk's gamma rays. However, Reed grimly asks the question, what will happen to the Fantastic Four? Yeah. It's a pretty decent synopsis, I guess. Yeah, covers it. You know, you know what? So, I'm left with a lasting thing about this issue, or the, this story, not even this issue, both issues, between what happens with the plane and him grabbing this, these bricks and ready to, you know, no thought about it, ready to throw them down on the uh, crowd. How do you make, even make the argument that the Hulk hasn't killed people? <laughs> Right. They, they're flying, you know, they're, they're flying across the country to, to get the Hulk. And it just happens that he destroys their plane. He must destroy like six planes a day. It's just, you know, I mean, it, it's just mind boggling. But you got to, you know, I think that's where you just kind of kind of go with the comics and accept the, uh, you know, that the, the, the sometimes, you know, you got to. Get rid of your disbelief. Um, See, I always took great exception to, I, I think it was Joe Casada. I could be wrong. I might be blaming the wrong person. But there was somebody right about the time the Ultimates came out that made such a big deal about, you know, they were doing a more realistic take on the Hulk. Because how ridiculous was it in, you know, in the regular 616 universe that, you know, in all the years that Hulk had been rampaging back and forth across, you know, the United States and honestly around the world, that he'd never actually killed anybody. And it really annoyed me because I was always of the opinion that, you know, the Hulk doesn't kill because Bruce Banner doesn't kill. But, you know, that honestly, I, I think that to me is a it's a holdover from the TV show because I was much more growing up as a kid. I was much more familiar with the TV show than I was with comic book Hulk. And that was such a big point, uh, you know, made over and over on that show is that the Hulk didn't kill people and he didn't kill people because David Banner would never kill anybody. Um, so, yeah. You know, but when you look at these old comics, as you say, you know, it, it does strain credulity past the breaking point that you know, even accidentally that he hadn't caused somebody to die. I mean, we looked at that one thing hulk fight where he threw a friggin train into the air i mean 
you can't you can't be on a train that falls 50 feet out of the sky and live i'm sorry it just that doesn't happen so yeah yeah it's and it's <laughs> it's fine to say the hulk doesn't intentionally murder anybody but with the way right. he's presented to say that you know there there aren't any accidental deaths it's a right. little hard it's a little hard to believe that <laughs> but yeah. I, like like i, I, said, I, I think I think this is just gets to the point where you got to say, I'm going to just take it on, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go with comic book logic and just believe that, you know, they survive. Right. Because otherwise it but just I, makes it impossible for them to have the stories they're telling. I think you make a good point though. I think if they had changed that from he's never killed anybody to where, you know, he, he wouldn't intentionally harm someone. Or you know, kill someone. I, I think that that would make it more palatable if somewhere along the line, there, there you know, there was a, a headline, you know, that uh, you know, four people found dead, you know, and uh, at the site of a, of a Hulk rampage type of thing. You know, he didn't intentionally murder them, but they were in the building that he knocked over, or you know, fell into, or whatever the case may be. So yeah, I'm with you. What do you think of this cover? Uh, I, I'm, I have mixed feelings about it because I kind of like the layout, but the perspective of it is pretty, I don't know, pretty crazy, I think. The arch doesn't right. look quite right. Uh, the size of the people compared to, you know, the, the actual arch itself doesn't look right. Uh, there's one guy who's, you know, the guys actually appear to have their heads outside of the windows, which I don't think you could do that. Um, right. It's It's... In concept, it's fine. In execution, I think it's lacking. Right. Yeah. I will totally agree with you. Because, yeah, on first glance, I'm like, oh, this is a great cover. But then the longer you linger on it, the more wonky starts to appear. And the more you start seeing things that just don't look quite right. Yep. Yeah, definitely. At at a glance, it's great. (laughs) Yeah. But, I mean, that's... I'm sure that was the intent It's just, you know, make a cover that, you know, is, is going to reach out and grab you on the stands and, you know, make you make you fork over your quarter. And I I think this does that, you know, because it is a, it is a very cool and dynamic looking cover. It's, it's only when you really just kind of linger over it uh, a little longer than you were meant to when it starts to kind of present itself as, wait a minute, that how does that work in the real world? It, it really doesn't. Yeah, it's for anybody who doesn't have this image in front of them or doesn't recall it. Uh, they're actually fighting on the uh, archway to the west in St. Louis. Uh, and the Thing and Hulk are standing on top of it, kind of side by side, and they're fighting the Fantastic Four. The Thing is throwing a punch at Mr. Fantastic. Uh, Sue is using a, a force field against the Hulk, and Johnny's kind of coming up from underneath the arch and shooting flames at the Hulk. Uh, and again, like at first glance, it's awesome, it's beautiful. But when you start looking more closely, it, it you start seeing the flaws. You ever been there? No. No. I had a layover there. I'm trying to remember when. It was either on my way to Texas or on my way back from Texas for basic training. So we're talking like 1986, 87. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wasn't there long enough because we wanted to go to the, the arch 
we weren't there long enough. The layover wasn't going to last long enough to actually go to it. So I got to see it like from a distance type of thing. It was pretty cool, but I didn't didn't ever get to go up in it, which would have been neat. But it's it's a pretty cool site though. I'm not I'm not really good on heights, so I (laughs) I would be intrigued by it, but I don't know if I would do well. If you recall when we were at the top of the uh, Empire State Building. Dave Weeder and I, in particular, were kind of staying in the back the whole time. That's just because you're afraid of giant monkeys, that's all. It's I'm a, nothing but a big, scary cat. <laughs> uh, so the artwork in this issue, just to compare it, because that was the biggest thing in the previous issue. Uh, the, I mean, the artwork itself, I would say the penciling is similar. I do see improvement in the inking. I'm not going to sugarcoat that, although I'd like to. I'd like to say Coletta did as well as Joe Sinnott. But I think Joe Sinnott benefits from the fact that he was so tied into the Fantastic Four that he could ink a Fantastic Four comic in his sleep uh, and, and yeah. do better than most people. Uh, you know, he, he had a way of, of, you know, we talked about the house style when, when it came to, you know, when Kirby left the book and, they, you know, everybody was trying to kind of, be Kirby-esque in the way they were presenting it and using Joe Sinnott to kind of carry that through, uh, you know, worked very effectively. And here he is still doing it. And I, and I think he, he's still capturing that same feel. Uh, I don't think you're, you're really seeing George Perez's style. In fact, I think you see a little bit less of the George Perez style in this one than you did in the previous one. I think Sinnott... Um. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I, I I was afraid to say it myself and sound disrespectful of you know the the just past you know Joe Sinnott. but yeah I, I don't get me wrong I think the art is fantastic in this issue but I see very little I mean if you if you presented me with pretty much any page in this book and and said okay pop quiz who was the penciler. There's so many artists I would name before I'd get to pay. I don't think I'd be able to pick out that this was Paris. I was thinking like Keith Pollard or, um, oh gosh, I just lost the other one that I, I was thinking of a minute ago. But yeah, I, I don't see the Parisisms in this. So I don't want to say Sinnott is burying uh, Paris's style, but you know, it's it's very distinctly Sinnott. But I'm not seeing distinctive Perez, if you know what I mean. Well, you know, so, this, yeah. this is coming on on the uh, the heels of Rich Buckler having had the book, and I think it, it looks, looks like very, Buckler. very similar. If you showed me this and told me this was Rich Buckler, I, I would have no problem believing you. Yeah, I think that was the other one I was trying to think of was Buckler. Yeah, there's there's a lot of instances here where I, I the the Hulk raging at the very bottom of page. It's blurry here. Sixteen, page sixteen, where he's going. Let them come. Hulk is ready for them. Hulk is ready for anyone. That looks like Rich Buckler right there, especially the face. Very much so to me. And and certainly that's not an insult at all because we've, we've previously expressed our love for Rich Buckler's work. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the artwork looks terrific in this, but I don't think the Perez style really comes through particularly. There are certain panels that you know, knowing that it's Perez, I'd say, oh, yeah, okay, that's one of his things. Uh, page six, the top left panel uh, with the thing in the Hulk's faces with the 
colored backgrounds and everything. That's kind of almost a Perez signature. Uh, yeah. Panel. Yeah, you're uh, right. You know, there, there's certain things like that. Or even uh, page seven, uh, the bottom uh, second to last panel with uh, General Sellers uh, with his arm raised. That almost looks like a signature Perez shot. You're right. Yeah. Uh, so th- yeah. there are there are some parts knowing that it's Perez that it's easy to pick it out. But if I didn't know, if there was no credits on this book and you asked me to, who, who had uh, drawn it, I might have landed on Perez, but I might not have. I, I, I would say, though, like just back to page seven, the actual the very last panel, uh, which is kind of a close up of Reed's face. The background of that shot with the kind of cross hatching, that is a very, very Perez thing, that cross hatching. Right. And so yeah. th- those little moments like that might have made me pick it out as a Perez book. Am but I? That's, that's all. Am I remembering? Am I remembering right that there there is some sort of connection with Buckler and Perez? Right? Didn't didn't he? They might have worked in the same studio at some point. Something like that. Like like he. I don't want to say like Perez apprenticed for him, but like like. Help him get work or something. I'm pretty sure that I've read that there's, there was some connection between the two. That, but I, I can't remember what it is. But I, in the very beginnings. Okay, uh, I just really, really the, quickly looked it up, and Rich Buckler's Wikipedia page indicates that he had hired Perez as an assistant at one time. There you go. Okay, yeah, I, I thought that there was a connection between. So that would explain why. Uh, their their art styles did look very similar in the very beginning because again before he he broke out into his very distinct personal style yeah that this definitely looks very buckler esque which is not a bad thing because you know I love me some uh, rich Buckler. so yeah, yeah. exactly nobody just, there's no insults to be had here no no not at all no I think the artwork in this book is beautiful it's just not distinctly George Perez that's that's yeah. the only observation about it that doesn't mean it's yeah. that doesn't mean it's lesser yeah it, it's it's a strange beast because you know the the last issue i i really liked the pencils but didn't care for the inking job and it's kind of the reverse in this where i really like the inking job but unfortunately it, it's it i don't want to say it buries the pen because i don't think that's the situation it, it's just like i don't know it, it i'm having trouble verbalizing how i want to put it you know but it, it, he uh it just doesn't seem as as obviously perez as the issue before it did but yeah. i don't know it's it's a it's it's a weird dichotomy but it's funny how much you know a simple thing like just you know Changing the inker can completely change the, you know, the visual feel of the book. But it really did between the two of them, I think. Yeah, I agree. So now there was, I'm sorry. I was I was gonna start going into the actual fight between the thing and the Hulk, but uh, but make your point first before I go to that. Um, there were a couple of things in this one, and now I'm struggling to remember because I didn't write my notes down like a fool. But there was. I'm pretty sure it happens in this issue, but I'm not seeing it. There was a point where, oh, here it is. 
page 23, where Sue, she stays on board the whatever the hell this flying thing was that they were using. It's a weird thing. I think they call it a plane, but it doesn't look like any plane I've ever seen. But anyway, they they bail out, they being Reed and Johnny, bail out of the ship and leave Sue in it to crash it into the drink on purpose. And she bubbles up to the surface in one of her force bubbles. And then when she gets there, she says that she wants to do this thing. She says, uh, another stunt I've been practicing in secret. And she creates a, she basically walks on water. She creates like this invisible path over the water leading to the arch. But she says something really kind of dumb here. She says, only thing is, I can't see the invisible path I've created, so I've got to take it slow. That's bizarre to me. And I thought by this point it had been established that while her constructs were invisible, that she was somehow able to perceive them. Am, am I wrong about that? I'm not certain, honestly. Uh, but I would think she's creating it. She knows where it is. Even if she yeah. isn't able to, you know, somehow visualize it. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not really that special because I saw Indiana Jones do that. <laughs> but, you know, it just it seems odd to me that she would have a power that she was that was imperceptible to her herself. Because, all right, for example, when she becomes invisible she still has to be able to see, otherwise she just walk around invisible bumping into shit. So it doesn't make any sense at all that she can't see. But she doesn't see herself. Right. If she makes herself invisible and then puts her hand in front of her face, she's still going to see through it. But I, I swear, and I, I have no idea where I would have read this, but I would swear, and, and it, maybe it's well past this point in FF history, but I swear I read something somewhere that explained more about her powers, and it, and it said something that addressed this very issue that that you're right, like she would see through her own hand, but at the same rate had the ability to perceive things that she had rendered invisible to other people's senses or there, something there, to that there effect. There has to be something there because think about it: if you had the if you had that power, and then you started to you know you made yourself invisible and you start manipulating things with your hands a lot of your ability to do things with your hands is relying on looking like if you you know you put down a pen you go to pick it up and write with it you're looking at your hand reaching for the pen to, to get that perception to see when you're getting it and getting it into your hand so now if your hand becomes invisible it's it would be a whole different dynamic and I mean, I guess blind people deal with this, but you know, you 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 wouldn't have the same perception. So if nothing else, you'd have to get used to it. And once you got used to it, I think then you'd be more comfortable and you'd be more adept at it. So she knows where she makes force fields. And I understand she's saying, well, I, I've been practicing this in private, so it's a new thing. But just the same, I think, you know, you're the one creating the force field. You know where you're creating it. You don't have to be able to see it. Hmm. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I Now that's that's going to bug me. I'm going to have to try to see if I can find where, where in the hell it was I read that. 
But uh, I don't know. I just I thought that was kind of a an odd an odd decision, you know, because Roy even goes into an explanation of you know the the re- representation that we see of the invisible objects is just for us, you know, that Marvel's. You know, because he makes a little joke out of it that it's a, a public service provided by Marvel. But I guess I always was under the impression that, yes, it's invisible. And I understand it's just an artistic uh, expression, but she herself could see those, you know, those perforated outlines type of thing. But I don't know, maybe not. There was another thing like that in this issue, too, and now I've, I've completely lost it. This is why I should write my notes down, I guess. But you wanted to talk about the fight, and uh, this fight has one of my favorite uh, fight moves in it. So I definitely want to talk about the fight. Well, when it when it finally, you know, the the, the Hulk is pounding away on the force field that's protecting Reed, and we we also, you know, just to go into things to come in these two issues, we see some moments where Reed is kind of stretched out and he's having trouble kind of getting back to his original form, and that. That comes to a head not too long from now, which is interesting since we have the thing turning back into Ben Grimm here, and we're not that far off from Reed losing his powers also. But anyway, uh, as he's pounding away on the force field, finally the thing has had enough, even though he's feeling dizzy, and he just wails on the Hulk, sends him flying. The the Hulk uh, comes back with a punch on the thing. He hits him again. Hulk gets a uh, thing gets an uppercut when actually actually not so much an uppercut as a, a a punch from down low coming up right right to his jaw uh, then he gets then he gets him with a cross and he's just about to hit him again so he's doing really well against the Hulk but then he starts turning back into Ben Grimm and mid transformation the, the Hulk uh, belts him and sends him flying and Johnny has to protect him so what we ultimately see here is the thing really getting the better of the battle until he starts turning back into ben Grimm, and then the hulk gets the i guess winning blow uh and if we were going to give the thing credit for winning when other people are holding the hulk down i think we have to give the hulk credit for winning this one what do you think? Um, yeah, this this one's a tough one because... Because the thing is getting the better well, of the fight until he starts changing. He is. And it's funny, um, I, I see exactly what you're talking about there in the bottom of page 27, that he's hitting him in the, in the chin or under the chin. I had actually interpreted that as a throat punch, and that's one of my favorite fight moves. So I thought... Oh, he punched him right in the throat. But no, I don't think he actually did. I think you're right. He's hitting him in the chin, and it's just the position of the fist makes it look like he's punching him like right in the Adam's apple, which would hurt. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, but you know um, what? He might. You might be right because he's got a serious look of pain on his face in that shot. Yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah, so, he does. Maybe you're right. Um. But. Yeah, th- this is a tough, a really tough fight to call because there's somewhere in the dialogue here where it makes it very clear that the writer doesn't believe that uh, that the thing could win. 
Yeah, well, the, 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 oh, right here. It's, it's, it's at the, the top, top of page thirty. Top of page thirty. Yeah, against the Hulk, the thing cannot win. So while he's really laying into the Hulk and he's really giving it his all and everything, at the end of the day, we're we're kind of seeing where it's you know predetermined by the writer that he can't win the fight. So I don't know. I, I think that just adds a, a kind of a strange dimension to the whole thing. But yeah, up until the point where he turns back, he does seem to have the upper hand in this fight. So, yeah, his being defeated by the Hulk uh, is a cheat because he's, you know, he's in mid-transformation back to a normal human being. You know, another second or two, he might not have survived taking a direct, you know, Sunday punch from the Hulk. So, um, but yeah, at, at the end of the day, I guess, you know, just because of you know him being taken out of the fight by the hit i guess it has to go to the hulk yeah well i think you know we got to be fair and if, if we gave the thing the last one you know when he didn't really earn it so much we're giving this right. one to the hulk even though he didn't really earn it so much and i and i do right. think based on the uh, narration it's telling us yeah he's landed some good blows here but the hulk isn't really going down for the count and, and eventually the, the thing's going to get tired of throwing punches and the Hulk is going to be no worse for wear. So I remembered what the other thing, my other issue with this, with this chapter was. And it's this whole thing of prolonged exposure to the Hulk and the gamma rays that he's emitting uh, makes the thing go all, you know, his powers anyway, go all crazy. And I really think that the story would have benefited from having the writer also have that be the explanation for why the thing acted the way he did, which they don't, he doesn't really do that. He just has that be the explanation for Ben's dizzy spells and for him eventually turning back human again. Um, so I feel like he did half the job there because it's still not really adequately explained, at least in my opinion, why the thing turned on his teammates uh, and and pretty vigorously. I mean, it wasn't just here, let me help the Hulk out. Let me you know help him get away. I mean, he threatened his teammates. He fights them in the beginning of the issue. And then they caused some serious property damage by destroying, you know, those planes and just all the stuff that goes on in this. This is just out of character for the thing. Yeah. Um, I think they would have been well, well served to have, explained his his behavior by you know that that he was being unfairly influenced by the hulk's you know ray emission or whatever because because it would also explain why they they wouldn't he wouldn't get prosecuted for this right and then my other even bigger issue with this is i'm trying to i'm flipping back real quick to see what issue is it that i'm thinking of I think it was the end of their fight. What was the one where they were locked in the fight and they wound up in the drink at the end of it? Oh yeah, that was uh, that was FF number twenty six. Mm-hmm. I argue that they have actually been in closer proximity for a longer length of time than they were in this issue, with no ill effects from the Hulk's radiation. So, yeah, well, I don't know, but then 
Now it's I a retcon to say it. that, but I don't know that it was a longer time in, in close proximity because here they were actually traveling together and stuff. So I think you can uh, you can argue this was the longest he was exposed to him continuously. Yeah, and I, I also, as I was saying it, it suddenly occurred to me that I could actually um, no-prize my own complaint, which was the Hulk had been exposed many more times to many higher doses of gamma radiation by this point. Because uh, I'm pretty sure I talked about this on another episode. I was shocked as I've been reading through Marvel history to learn that, you know, again, I was largely informed as a kid on the Hulk from the TV show. In the TV show, he takes one accidental you know, overdose of gamma radiation, and that's that. In the comics, you know, a lot of times if you just look at the origin of the Hulk, you know, comic book wise, it makes it look like once again, it was one accident. Like he's hit by the gamma bomb and he's, you know, doused with radiation and now he becomes the Hulk. Well, it's just not true. Over the course of the early history of the Hulk, dumbass Bruce Banner would repeatedly expose himself to more gamma radiation in order to trigger transformations into the Hulk before it became the standard that when he you know, got his ire up, he would just turn into the Hulk on his own. He actually kept dousing himself with radiation in order to, you know, to bring on the transformation. So, you know, a lot of my sympathy for comic book Hulk has been lost over the years by, by this knowledge that, hey, stupid, you, you, you made a bad situation even worse. You might have been able to deal with, you know, this this whole affliction in the very earliest stages but then he just kept tampering with it and making this uh, a bad situation worse. It, it's kind of funny, really. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. And uh, yeah, but I th- so I think we can explain away the exposure part of it. I just think, like I said, like you said, and like I had said earlier, uh, a, a simple line of narration saying that it had affected his thought process or his impulse control or whatever, I think would have solved our problems with the thing acting out of character. Now, in the next to most recent tussle that we talked about, I'm trying to remember what the hell issues that was now. Um, let's see. Or no, it's even further. But no, never mind. I was going to say there was that one tussle we talked about where something was happening to the, to the thing. That was he in he, Fantastic Four 112. Yeah, so that was several – that was several tussles ago. Okay, so he wasn't still suffering from whatever it was that was making him. No. Okay. No, yeah. in fact, when when he recovered from, you know, if you remember at the end of that issue, they thought, oh, he's dead. When he recovered and turned out to not be dead, he had regained his normal persona. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Huh. So I'm presuming that we never really get an explanation for why he's kind of out of character in this, then, other so. than just felt bad for the Hulk. I don't know. Yeah, it just, which isn't it enough, but you know, you got a head cannon yeah. it a little, I think. <laughs> so we ready to huh? rate this? Yeah, that's all I got. All right. So you 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 did the synopsis, so you go ahead and rate. Okay. <laughs> uh, flipping back to the cover here. I like the cover. Um, again, I think if it's just a quick, you glance at it and go, oh, that's really cool, then it works and it sells. 
um, it's when you linger over it that it kind of starts to fall apart. There's just the, the perspective and the physics of it don't really work. Um, so with that in mind, I think I'm going to go, uh, I think I'll be generous and go a solid B because it, it's mostly that the only other thing artistically that I don't care for is once again, the Hulk has dur face. I just don't <laughs> like, he, he looks almost like a, he almost looks like a monkey with muscles or something. Then he does the Hulk. He's just got a really derpy looking face, but, uh, but the rest of it, I, I, I pretty much like, and I don't think we mentioned this is Jack Kirby, by the way, this is Jack oh, Kirby. Yes. And I think Sinnet on the inks with this. I think so. Um, so yeah, be, a solid B on the cover. Interior art. Um, I really like the interior art on this, and uh, I, I've always liked uh, Joe Sinnet uh, as, as an inker. I just think he's really, really cool. Um, I just wish it was a little more obvious that it was Perez, because again, uh, even even knowing that, I. Man, I'd be really hard pressed to to pick out who this was if I didn't know it. Um, but that said, it is really good. I think I'm gonna go. Uh, I think I'll go a solid B on the interior art as well. Actually, I think I'll go a B plus because I really do like it a lot. Um, and then story wise, unfortunately, I I feel like this second chapter isn't near as strong as the first chapter. It's still a hell of a lot of fun, and I really enjoy it. it it's just the thing that. There, ultimately, there is no rationale for why the thing did this, and it's not—it's not one little thing. It's not like he's just helping the Hulk out. I mean, he turned on his teammates and he fights them, and that and the and the collateral damage, the property damage, destroying the planes for really no good reason. Um, I mean, all of this adds up. I kind of expected. Because again, the, <clears throat> pardon me, the cover right? doesn't it say something. It touts some sort of some sort of shock ending or something. Let's see. Yeah, shock ending. I thought the shock ending once he turned back into the thing, and you see, you know, as you flip the, to the final page, you see the military at the bottom of the page. I thought the shock ending was gonna he was gonna be under arrest, but they almost have like a like a jokey Star Trek ending at the end of it. Nobody seems pissed about all this stuff. <laughs> And yeah, it just seems a that's little, a little weird. Yeah, yeah, it's a little ridiculous, honestly. You know that you know no nobody's angry about this situation. Nobody blames the thing. They're just all happy that he's back human again. Really? So yeah, that that brings it down actually quite a bit for me. Um, so story wise on this one, I, I think I'm going to go a. a B minus on the story. I, I think it fell quite a bit from the first chapter, um, but you know, action-wise, you can't fault it. it. Is it's it's a great action piece, and it is a hell of a lot of fun. It's just it's a little dopier than the than the first chapter. Uh, overall grade on this, um, I think I'll go with an overall grade of a B minus. Still, still good stuff. Still enjoyable. Yeah, I mostly agree with you. Uh... The cover, I think you said it perfectly. It's a B, and uh, for exactly the reasons you said. The interior art, the biggest complaint about the interior art is you can't really pick out that it's George Perez. But that's not really, when you think about it, it's not really a complaint because it right. looks great. So yeah. I, I'm going to say an A on the interior art. I think it's really solid. Uh, you know, just the fact that it, it doesn't have stylistic flourishes to it isn't enough for me to, to lower the grade on it. 
Uh, every, every, I don't think there's a panel in here that I didn't like, honestly. Uh, the story, I feel like, you know, ultimately I feel like this, this, the story in this issue should have been stretched over two issues. This should have been a three-issue story yeah. instead of a two-issue story. And I think it would have benefited from that. I think it, it feels a little bit rushed in the way it all progresses. Uh, so for that reason, I'm going to drop what could be a B-plus story down to a B. Uh, and overall, I'm going to give the book a B-plus. Because well, I think the I interior think art... Off. I, th- I think it's it's a B for the uh, cover and for the story, and the uh, the interior art brings it up to a B plus. Cool. All right, so I think we'll save the email for next time because we're ten almost ten twenty already. Uh, okay. So that'll do it for this this installment in our Thing Hulk uh, retrospective. Next time out, unless I'm mistaken, we will be doing. Marvel 2-in-1 number 46 and Marvel 2-in-1 annual number 5. Yep, that's what I have as well. All right, so those will be our next two in this, and uh, I'm still enjoying this, so let's keep it it going. (laughs) Everybody, thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying it too. See you next time. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Nah, that sucks.